It's Friday, January 30th. Welcome to a special Friday edition of Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. I am alone in studio, but that's okay, because earlier this week we had a special guest visiting Fool Global headquarters here in Alexandria, Dominic Germain. Dominic was the British ambassador to the UAE from 2010 to 2014, and currently he is the CEO of UK Trade and Investment, which is the government body that helps British businesses export and helps bring foreign investment to the UK. Dominic sat down with two of my colleagues, Brian Richards, who heads up The Motley Fool's European operations, and Mike Olson, a senior analyst focused on the UK markets. Mike also works on Champion Shares Pro, which is our real money portfolio service in the UK. Over the course of their conversation together, they discussed a range of topics, including individual stocks, why British pension reform is so meaningful for individuals, and they wrapped up the whole thing with a round of buy, sell, or hold. But the entire conversation kicks off with Dominic sharing why he's bullish on the macroeconomic picture in the UK, despite the uncertainty elsewhere in Europe. Dominic, thank you for joining us here at Full Global Headquarters. We're happy to have you. A real pleasure. It's great to be here. So the Molly Fool's focus is on um, what we call bottoms-up fundamental analysis of public companies. Um, the, the macro picture certainly plays into some of our investment um, theses, but we try not to focus on that uh, primarily. Um, with that being said, it would be helpful for our listeners and for us to get a sense for um, some bigger picture trends happening in the U- UK economy. Um, and to tee this up, let me get um, three reasons to be bullish on the UK economy from you. Okay, I'm delighted to do that. So, three reasons to be bullish. Well, number one, we're seeing the highest growth rates that we're seeing at any major market in the G7 or G20 at the moment. And this is quite something after where we all were in 2008, 2009. I think number two, we're also seeing a real resurgence in export from the UK. And my organization, UK Trade and Investment, is all about attracting investment into the UK and supporting exporters. And all the economics suggests, demonstrates, that exporters do better. They do better in a recession. They produce more profit, they employ more people, they encourage more innovation. And so as we see exports grow from the UK, that tells us something about the UK economy. And then the third thing is stability, stability of policy. So when we look at the core policies that affect the investing environment in the UK, we see that throughout the political cycle, no matter who's in power, the UK has been an investment market that has attracted foreign direct investment and has attracted um, all the investment that has made London a global financial centre. And I don't see that changing. Um, The UK was second in the most recent global innovation index, um, beating out the US actually. Um, And it has has risen from uh, something like 10th a few years ago. So there's been a clear uh, upward trajectory in that that ranking. Last year was started off as a really strong year for LSE-listed IPOs. Um, things tailed off a little bit uh, as some of the IPOs uh, underperformed. But just wondering if you had thoughts on whether the fruits of that innovation um, are flowing through to, to newly listed, smaller, medium-sized companies, or if that's, um, if that's primarily taking place in sort of large global companies. I think something's very interesting is going on with the investment front. So in the UK, we've got, for example, four of the top 10 universities in the world, 
But traditionally, we've struggled to turn that innovation, to turn all the Nobel Prizes for science, etc., into businesses and to uh, monetize it, to capitalize on it. What we're seeing now with some of the spin-outs around universities, some of the innovation networks, some of the catapults that have been set up in order to turn R&D into business, um, we're seeing a range of policies that are starting to make it more attractive both for UK entrepreneurs to develop their businesses in the UK and for foreign businesses to come in and develop to work in partnership with, with UK companies. So when I look at some of the businesses I've worked with from my last job in the Middle East who came and listed on AIM, the reason that they were coming to list on AIM was partly about uh, the corporate governance that that involved, um, partly about that generational shift from maybe uh, founder owners to wanting to raise money and uh, demonstrate that they could operate uh, as a sort of global player. But it was also about capitalizing on the opportunities in the UK to access that research and innovation base. So we're seeing it pulled through, I would say, particularly in healthcare sectors, in the advanced engineering, uh, lots of the advanced engineering businesses that are looking to, for example, draw through all the innovation that goes around Formula One, that then um, from the eight uh, Formula One teams based in the UK, eight out of 12, that then starts to get into the mainstream automotive market and automotive businesses, uh, many of which are American owned, that operate in the UK and make it Europe's second largest exporter of vehicles. Um, I'm starting to see that coming through now as innovation going directly into the stock market. Mm-hmm. Let me just a quick question, Dominic. You know, when we talk about innovation and economic growth, um, you know, understanding the sort of sort of travails or perceived travails of the eurozone. Obviously, the UK's relative strength as an economy has been a very well covered phenomenon in the financial press. Is there something that you would say has been sort of chronically underestimated or not particularly well covered. What is, what is one thing that is very surprising to you and encouraging, which has not maybe gotten a lot of coverage by the financial press? I think the growth of manufacturing in the UK is a bit of a surprise to anybody who doesn't really investigate mm-hmm. it or know about it. Right. Mm-hmm. So when I look at um, the UK, okay, so it's the world's second largest aerospace manufacturer. Uh, but actually, it has an enormous space industry, and it's developing a whole range of systems around satellites, uh, around all the technologies that go into making the ecosystem that, that enables the space industry, and it's then exporting it. Mm-hmm. And it's exporting it not to Europe, which is good, because we need to make sure that we diversify beyond Europe, because rates of growth there are just sure. so unattractive, mm-hmm. but it's exporting it to the United States, um, and to India, to uh, other places that are growing economies, Brazil, etc. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And and if there's one thing, obviously, um, you 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 have a good bit of optimism surrounding the UK's prospects. Um, but if there's one thing you were to say, maybe kind of in the back of your mind, um, would keep you awake at night, or you would you would say, as an investor, um, an economist, a policymaker, you are particularly focused on this metric because you think it is essential. To growth, what what would maybe concern you if it were not to work out well? Well, look, there's macro and there's UK specific. So macro, um, I would be worried about what's going to happen in Greece and elsewhere in Europe. Um, but really interesting to see how the markets responded immediately after the radical left government in Greece was elected earlier this week. They went up, 
Yeah, go figure. They don't. They don't really stand a chance. <laughs> <laughs> and then for the UK economy itself, I guess it is uh, the questions around the impact on our traditional export markets in Europe mm. um, and how that's going to affect our ability to diversify away from European exports elsewhere. Right, right. Mm-hmm. So let's turn to the market and, and sort of stock-specific level. Um, and, and Mike, I'm looking more at you um, for, sure. for this segment here. Um, the FTSE 100 is still below its all-time high, which was set in December of 1999. Yeah. Um, and uh, I, I'm not one for uh, very specific predictions. Mm-hmm. Um, Good, because I'm not either. However, <laughs> I want to get a very but. specific prediction from you now. I, I'd, I'd like to know um, sort of what, what your outlook is um, on the FTSE 100 in the next, let's say, 12 to 24 months. Yeah, so um, I think Dominic did a, a great job of describing the recovery we've seen in the UK, which is, you know, that there has been this kind of against all odds growth, wherein you look at many of the UK's principal trading partners, the Eurozone, and they're they're struggling with a sort of secular stagnation, or so it would seem. And yet, in spite of that, the UK has continued to post impressive growth. You know, we've seen a slow but steady recovery to uh, employment levels. And recently, sort of a a continuous state of or source of concern was wage growth. And we've seen wage growth most recently. Uh, a lot of job vacancies and consumer spending is also returning. Then there's kind of the put, which is to say that um, even in spite of that, you know, the UK remains tied to the Eurozone. Um, I think many of the larger international corporations have done an excellent job of diversifying their revenue streams, but there, there's sort of an inextricable link right there. Um, and I also think one thing which is sort of understated, which is the UK's strength um, will, in fact, also weigh to the detriment of many UK companies because the pound, I believe, will continue to be strong against the Eurozone, and that's going to put a drag on their results. Um, and so, you know, right now you see the, the FTSE 100, it's trading at uh, maybe, a, I think, a, a 12 or 13, 14 multiple. And by historical standards, you know, that's not an extraordinarily expensive multiple. Um, I wouldn't say it's, you know, this sort of multiple where I'm, I'm sort of a starved man at a hot dog eating contest, <laughs> but <laughs> it's also not the type of thing what that- What would that multiple be, Mike? <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that would probably be once you get below 10, then, then you know, okay. the, the, um, the opportunistic and somewhat conniving individual in me will <laughs> manifest. Um, so, you know, right now it's, it's not particularly cheap, but I'm also- you know, I'm not scared right now either. I think this is very much, and you know, this is one of those cliched terms that that I always sort of grind my teeth when I hear or read about it. Um, but it's very much a stock picker's market, and the fact that you know you need to be, and and this is something we've always been at the fool. But we're focused on the individual companies and their growth prospects, and right. not so much, you know. Obviously, we are cognizant of the macro risks and of the fact that you know, when you talk about things like the eurozone. Um, and its state and condition, and Greece, um, possible debt write-offs, these are not insubstantial issues, um, you know, because these are structural. These aren't, you know, mere blips on the radar. Sure. But we're we're really thinking about the companies themselves. And in your work, um, looking for great businesses mm-hmm. for Motley Fool UK <coughs> membership services, you're finding them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So let's talk a little bit about. 
um, two stocks or, or one or two stocks, let's say, that you and uh, and the team of UK analysts have uh, recently uncovered that you like? Maybe they're not formal um, recommendations yet, but um, just name a couple of companies and what you like about them. Yeah, so these are two companies that have kind of uh, recently hit my my radar screen, and I, these these are not formal recommendations, but these are stocks that are interesting to me right now. Uh, the first one is possibly one of the more boring businesses ever, and that is perhaps why I love it, is a company called Rexam. Uh, They're one of the three largest producers of aluminum cans. Uh, 60 to 70% of capacity is held by the three largest players. And so you have this, this sort of oligopoly-esque industry dynamic. Um, the reason for that is the cost of you know, proximity to your, uh, your customers matters very much because this is a low-value-to-weight product. And so the cost of constructing a competing facility, earning an adequate return, um, it's somewhat prohibitive if you aren't an incumbent. And so that creates uh, a barrier to entry. It's What's the market cap of, of Rexam? Uh, the market cap of Rexam is, I believe, ten billion pounds. Okay. Um, you know, they have uh, they benefit from long term contracts, and many of these have escalators uh, raw, where raw materials costs. If in the event there's any movement, there are adjustments for that. Uh, that's important because about fifty percent of their costs are in aluminum. <laughs> uh, this has ensured relatively stable returns on invested capital and margins. Uh, Recently, the stock's taken a bit of a hit because there was an uncharacteristic misstep. Uh, some of the European contracts do not have protection against raw material cost and, inflation. And why is it a stock that you're interested in but have not yet made a formal recommendation? What are you What are you looking at? Um, I think you know the thing. The thing I'm trying to get a better handle on is the industry dynamic here, where. You know, you you haven't seen these sort of dips where Rexham has been forced to go ahead and give a little bit of margin to its customers. I think the reason underlying this is because aluminum, uh, it has fetched a relative premium recently because a lot of folks have been stockpiling it as a store of value in this low interest rate environment. And so, you know, intuition would tell you that's an unsustainable uh, condition. But this is something that you know I'm still continuing to get comfortable with it. At 11 times earnings right now, this is for sort of a stalwart, steady she goes company. Yeah. Uh, that's something that looks very interesting to me. Okay, let's talk about one more stock. Mm-hmm. Uh, it can be a stock that you like or a stock that you don't like right now. Which one do you want to go with? Uh, what, what do you What do you want to hear, Tom? I want to hear one you like. Okay, all right, fine. <laughs> so I'm writing down Rexan. I got the spelling. <laughs> so we've got uh, this is another one which I, I think is. A touch dear on price, but is a very interesting business. Uh, it's a company called Berenson. Uh, it's a relatively small company. I think it's about a 1.9 billion pound market cap. Um, and what these guys do, they have this wonderful hub and spoke model where they provide laundering and cleaning services. So they basically, you know, they give you the widgets, or they'll go ahead and and pick up your laundry, go wash it, and then bring it back for healthcare, industrial companies, and so on. For our U.S. listeners, it's similar to Cintas. Yes, very okay. similar to Cintas. Um, and this, this hub-and-spoke model is very unique, where once you, you have a business which is operating at scale, um, that network becomes very valuable for your customers and, and for the business itself, because the incremental profitability of a new contract is, of course, enormous. Um, because you know the key costs for them are, of course, maintenance of their fleet and fuel costs. Uh, to the extent you believe the recent dip in oil prices is indeed a sustainable phenomenon, they're going to be a, a really big beneficiary of this. Um, the other thing that's interesting here is these guys are a leader within the market, and so it, it's still relatively fragmented. And so their ability to be 
a consolidator, in fact, a very logical consolidator, is it, it makes a lot of sense. Um, and, and they're primarily focused on the domestic UK market right now? They are. About half of their business is in the UK. The remainder of their business, and this is why the stock has come off a little bit, is in the stronger of the EU markets. But of course, you know this, this company has a bit of an industrial bent. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're exposed to uh, their next largest customers are Germany, Denmark, and Sweden. Um, but they will experience a bit of a knock-on effect from EU weakness. Um, you'd also imagine, on account of the fact that these these countries deal in the euro, um, well, Sweden notwithstanding, um, sure. that there's going to be a little bit of a knock-on from the currency effects. And so you could see, you know, if you if you have a little bit of slowness in manufacturing and that currency effect, you might see earnings get stung a little bit. And I think that that'll be an interesting opportunity for you. You know, right now, as I said, this is about trading about 20 times free cash flow. So you're pricing a good bit of growth. I think that is indeed fairly reasonable. But um, I would get really excited about this stock to the extent, you know, of course, conditions, you know, notwithstanding, sure. maybe at about 14, 15 times free cash flow, because then, you know, you're really only pricing just north of about inflationary growth. It's a great business, maybe price tag a little too rich. Yeah, at current I mean, I, I think not unreasonable, but not mouthwateringly cheap either. Great. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Mike. So we talked a little bit about the macro climate. We've talked a little bit about some specific stocks that are on Mike's radar and, and the UK analyst team's radar. Um, let's talk a little bit about the UK investor um, or the UK retiree or, or uh, the UK worker right now who wants to retire um, by the time they're aged 6570. Um, so, Dominic, tell us a little bit about any personal investing trends in the UK that you've witnessed um, in the past few years and are, are, are worth noting. Well, I'll just tell you my own story, actually. So, I started investing, gosh, quite a long time ago. And I did that on the back of the tax-free uh, allowances that we we're allowed to do each year in order to in order to encourage small investors into the markets for the first time. Um, and I began um, with the, as you'd expect, the investment funds, and then went for individual stocks. And I think that's a, that's a trend, that's a journey that a lot of people have been on. Um, we all got our fingers burned um, seven or eight years ago, uh, and then we've gradually drifted back into the market again. And we're seeing uh, an increasing number of investors taking advantage of the ISAs, of the uh, other opportunities there that the government's putting there. And so it's interesting seeing in the political dialogue, as we lead up to an election now, the role of the individual investor is something that is talked about. And the um, tax breaks that are available for them, how the investor is going to be treated by a new government is actually, it's not the key political issue, of course, but it is a political issue. More broadly, for retirees, there has been an absolute revolution in the way that pensions are being treated in the UK. I remember my dad, when he hit 75, he had to buy an annuity. That compulsory behavior that has been there for decades in the United Kingdom has been changed. There is much more free choice now, so that when you choose at what age you're going to retire, you choose how you're going to invest your retirement fund or whether indeed you you invest it um, or uh, or use a significant portion of it in a way that simply was not available before. Um, and the vehicles that you can use are much more flexible. I think the intention is to respond to the, uh, the change in demographic, to acknowledge that 
uh, people are now spending two to three decades retired, uh, but actually maybe they don't want to be fully retired. Maybe they want to work part-time and have uh, investments that support that part-time, part-time activity. And there is a new state pension vehicle. Um, and there is auto-enrollment, which is revolutionary. Five million people already in auto-enrollment, with another five million expected to be affected by that in the next, um, next five or six years. So significant changes. Has that been a, a significant um, boon to the asset management industry in the UK? Yes, it has at a, at a personal level. Actually, your competitors. Sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I do think, I, I mean, to Dominic's point on pension reform, this is really kind of an, an unprecedented and an important opportunity for UK investors in and of the fact that, you know, their options were more or less dictated to them. And so now the opportunity to to be sort of the agent of your own your own future, and you know, by by being educated um, and and really pursuing the sort of path that we we espouse at the full, mm-hmm. um, there's an enormous opportunity before UK investors right now, and it, it, it's truly revolutionary what what this may indeed do for for their future and that of future generations. And so, um, I think the the importance of being educated on markets, financial products, and and stocks. Uh, is is quite high right now, and that's something that, you know, I think you, you'll see that that gaining increasing coverage in future years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that's absolutely right. That that recognition that this is something that we don't just have to have for a very small number of people, but that we need to think about how we educate kids at school, mm-hmm. how we educate right through society, and make it part of of what it is that we talk about. So I note uh, you asked me about trends. I note that the money pages of the Sunday newspapers in the UK, which was pretty much the only place you'd find this specialist sort of area, mm-hmm. actually we're migrating to you know the front page when mm-hmm. something significant happens. Yeah. Um, and we're looking at apps, looking at different ways of, of getting this information because we need to know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we're going to wrap up with a, a signature game of buy, sell, or hold. But Dominic, before we do, um, I, I've, in, in reading your bio, you've traveled extensively around the world. Um, you were in the UAE as an ambassador for the last few years. Um, I want I want one hidden gem travel spot. Okay. Well, I escaped investment banking quite a long time ago. And Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you very much. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and I haven't looked back. Um, <laughs> and I went off to uh, Pakistan for the British Foreign Service, where I learned Urdu. Hmm. And then I found myself drifting up to Afghanistan and eventually became an um, man to the warring factions in Afghanistan. I had the world's longest business card. <laughs> and it meant I would sit sometimes with um, members of the Taliban, members of the people fighting the Taliban, and, and discuss all sorts of stuff before Afghanistan became the the center of global attention. And I just remember this extraordinary country with um, amazing mountains where, because there were no other um, Westerners there, I was able to wander around almost on my own. I had a heavy beard in those days. <laughs> and it's a very different Afghanistan to the, to the Afghanistan we've perhaps seen on our TVs over the last... Uh, uh, 10, 15 years. But I have to say, um, the civil war there was nobody's idea of fun. And it's been tremendous to see kids getting back into school and women getting back into the workplace there more recently. Wow. That is a hidden gem. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Okay. So, so buy, sell, or hold here. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to propose something to you. You tell me whether you'd buy it, sell it, or simply hold it. 
Um, so the first one we'll go with is um, at, at, at The Motley Fool, we're all about learning from experiences. We, have, we, we pride ourselves on having a learning culture here. So buy, sell, or hold that the financial centers in New York and London learned valuable lessons after the financial crisis. Bye, bye, bye. <laughs> I'm sorry. I have to disagree. So, um, human nature, if, if there's one thing we know, it's that history does not change. Um, oh, come on. The learn from the experience. Uh, My God. All right. Sure. Um, <laughs> Optimist and a pessimist. Okay. Um, and why would you buy? I would buy because they've realized they're on notice and they've got to do better than we all managed to do collectively in the past. And I think they have to demonstrate that. And I'm sure they will. Okay. And Mike, why would you sell? Uh, I think, you know, the nature of the risk taking in subsequent um, imbroglios, which have, have happened post credit crisis, they have an eerie sort of recurrence, thematically speaking. And, you know, I think that, I think that there's an incentive problem, more broadly speaking, in banking. Um, and so, you know, that will, arguably speaking, always be an issue. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not necessarily something that keeps me awake at night, but I think it is just something to be mindful of when you consider these things as investments. Okay. What I really hope is the regulators keep some of the banks awake at night, and that will be really good. And yes, I, I absolutely do agree with that. And I think the UK has done brilliant things in, ter- in terms of the ring fencing mechanisms, because that does indeed, uh, that mitigates some of that risk on a systemic basis, mm, yep. which is it was very important. Um, the Super Bowl is this weekend. Uh, for any American football fans out there, and I know there are a lot here in the U.S., um, the NFL has has been trying to export its product to the U.K. market in particular, holding games in London. Buy, sell, or hold the future of American football in the U.K. Buy. I I gotta go with maybe I, maybe I. Discount it's it's the measure of its cultural influence, but I'm going to go with the hold. And the idea here is that there are certain games which are just sort of arcane with respect to the rules and you know why and how things happen. You can read about cricket, <laughs> right? Yeah, cricket. I, that was I wasn't going to say, it, but you said it. Um, you know, and so you know you see this guy and he kind of like jumps on someone, and then all of a sudden you know there's a penalty and everyone's just kind of sitting there scratching their heads. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, I mean, maybe they'll just cut back on the number of rules and then, and then it can go ahead and make it over. But uh, that, that might be a barrier. I live just next to one of the great green spaces in London, Wandsworth Common. And every Saturday I see a group of people going out and playing American football. And they strike me as people who've just kind of evolved after 150 years of rugby. <laughs> the UK or London, at least, is ready for something new. And that's the gap that American football can fit. Nah, I mean, there, okay. there, are, there are more pads and helmets there. So that. There's a lot more stoppage time to yeah. in American mm. football. <clears throat> okay, buy, sell, or hold the future of the UK in the EU. Oh, do you want to do you want to answer this? <laughs> There's no of good answer. Of course I do. Um, <laughs> of course I do. I say buy, and shall I tell you why? Please. Okay. Well, because the EU um, and the UK, the UK has always been at the heart of Europe. We're even attached to it by a tunnel, for goodness' sake, <laughs> and that nobody's going to block up the tunnel. Um, and for us, I think there is a great deal of interest from other European countries about having a, a reformed. EU that isn't just about centralization, but that's actually about delivering the benefits. This incredible project that we all got together for after we decided that 
you know, the events of the 1940s were just appalling. We never want to see them again. And that is tremendously important for us all. And I think that you can have an EU that can be reformed. I think you can get to an EU that um, will not encourage the kind of, you know, frankly, extremist parties that we're seeing in different parts of the EU at the Mm -hmm. moment. Um, And I think there will be buy-in to that. So there's a lot of tricky politics to go to get there. And, you know, we, the UK, got to navigate that and got to navigate it brilliantly. But I think that is certainly the future as I'd like to see it. Yeah, I I will also go by here. And I think it is because Britons and and more broadly, um, just they they recognize the importance of openness in markets and, and across borders. And there is a certain danger, particularly when you observe the, the the sort of recent contraction in these economies in adopting an isolationist attitude with respect to flows of money, foreign direct investment, immigration, so on and so forth. And to the extent you remove or you remove yourself from a broader collective uh, that doesn't serve anyone's greatest end with respect to developing economies and growing across the long term, um, and. And so I, I think I think there's going to be a broader recognition of that, and I certainly hope there will be. Yep. Mm-hmm. All right. Final question. England right now is a twelve to one to win Euro six twenty sixteen. Uh, buy, sell, or hold England winning the European Football Championship next summer. Oh my God! It's going to have to be my first non-buy <laughs> of the program. <laughs> who's your Who's your pick though? Then. Um. Oh. <laughs> Well, I can tell you that the odds makers are favoring Germany, mm. which is perhaps not a surprise to anybody. Right. No, it isn't. It isn't. But I'd, I'd like to think it would be possible for England to, to get there. It is a bit of a challenge there. I'll tell you what, um, there is hope. So my kid, when he was four at our local school, um, had Chelsea coming around to try and get him, other children, into the local academy. Mm-hmm. And so what would just be fabulous is if we see uh, more young English kids mm-hmm. coming up through the through the clubs mm-hmm. rather than you know pretty um, it's pretty international when yeah. you look at the uh, mm-hmm. the teams yeah. on the great English sides at the moment mm-hmm. I just uh, I just did some research um, on the Bundesliga in Germany and sixty um, percent of Bundesliga players are German born and only thirty three percent of Premier League players are English yeah. So, so uh, yeah. if you if you had to choose a dark horse, and you know, the, not the UK, but one team you would like to win, which is maybe you know, always had, they've had the fundamentals, but they just for some reason or another haven't been able to get there. Who who do you want to see win, or who would you like to see play in the final round? It would be Portugal. Okay, they are just such fun, <laughs> and I know that London would just be full of Portuguese having an absolutely wild night out mm. if they were in the finals, and even if they lost. It would still be just great fun to see them out there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They play amazingly. If you'd like to learn more about UK and European stocks, check out our UK website. That's fool.co.uk. Fool.co.uk. You can also check out Fool UK on Facebook or follow on Twitter at The Motley Fool UK. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you on Monday.